Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. The best project is a done project. So make sure you have a, a place of ending in mind when you start something in the media industry and push towards that because having a halfway done idea doesn't really help you. One, it doesn't make you look good. And two, it's not presentable. So we had a very clear endpoint for this series and I'm amazed that you know we're days away from having six one hour episodes completed. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 45. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. The first time I came up with the idea to do my first doc, Journey to Kathmandu, I was in the middle of, of Nowheresville in the mountains of Nepal, and I was on a trek. If you're a frequent listener of TDL, you've heard this story before. I was in the midst of this this 15-day trek, commonly known as, as the Annapurna Trek. And on this trek, we kept running into herds of goats. And a herd would be anywhere from 100 to, to 300 of these goats. And, and there were times where, you know, we'd all be sharing this this same little 10-foot path where, you know, to one side of us was the side of a hill. And, and, and the other side, I say hill, but I should say mountain. And the other side was, was a 500-foot drop. Of course, he'd go on to further explain that they were all going to market in Kathmandu to be sold to families who would then sacrifice the goat to the goddess Durga during the height of their culture's biggest and most sacred festival of the year known as Dasai. The goat would be consumed and almost all of its body parts would be repurposed for further use. But this made me really pause, and it certainly got me thinking, like a lot of thinking. Thinking, walking, meditation, contemplation, call it what you will, but, but when one is, when is trekking for days on end in a place like Nepal, one has a lot of time to do such a thing. It's part of the beauty of such an endeavor. If you're not comfortable with thoughts or self-examination, a trekking venture in Nepal or, or anywhere else really may not be for you. But soon after learning about the future that lay ahead for these goats, and and tens of thousands more in the coming week, I started to ponder two things. One of them was something that I was, and you will pardon the phrase, deathly afraid of. The subject of death and dying. From since I can remember, I've been extremely unsettled by this idea that we as humans, of course this is is depending upon your, your own belief system, we have this one shot at existence, this mortal coil, if you will, and that after your rather short lifespan, you just one day just cease to exist ever again. Simply, you know, maybe you're put in the ground or, or burned to ashes in an oven or, or maybe chopped up into bits and, and fed to vultures. And well, at least in my belief, that's it, right? Kaput, nothing else after that. 
And while I'm mostly comfortable with my own belief system, which is, I don't know, I, I would say it, it, it's fairly agnostic with, with certainly with bits of Buddhism sprinkled in for good measure. As I said, I've never really been comfortable with the idea of death. Now, I know that for many who do have religious beliefs, death really isn't such a scary thing, that it's merely a segue into to whatever's next. And if I'm being completely honest, I sometimes find myself even envying to a degree others who do find comfort in, in the subject of death through their religion. But I do digress. Anyhow, yeah, death, that, that's, that's one thing I pondered on, on, on my trek. The other thing was film. More specifically, how to tell the story of these goats and their once-in-a-lifetime journey and to somehow make this into a documentary film. Now, at that point, it's important to know I'd been working in the film and TV and commercial industry for, I don't know, almost maybe five years, mostly doing the commercial work. And, and while I'd extensively worked on a couple of other people's documentaries, I hadn't done one of my own. And so I knew that if I was really going to set out to make this film and in turn sell people on the idea that they should either you know, fund or eventually want to watch this film about the, the sacrificial deaths of goats, it was going to take something extraordinary to make that happen. I knew that it was going to take a leap of faith. And the leap of faith is something that we all at some point or another with our documentary films, we must take, which is what we'll be taking a look at in our first segment today. The Documentary Filmmaker's Leap of Faith, why we do it, how it's critical in propelling us forward with other projects, and what are some ways in which we can help sustain our leaps of faith. And then after that, I'm going to sit down and talk with two filmmakers who also took a massive leap of faith of their own and made a six-part documentary series, which was about, yep, you guessed it, death. Okay, hands up. Who here is living a documentary life? Would you say that you are? What does it mean to live a documentary life anyway? Well, we'll happily give you our definition. To us, living your documentary life means that you have crafted your lifestyle in a way such that you are able to make the documentary films you choose to make without it negatively impacting other aspects of your life, be that financial, your immediate relationships, or personal wellness. And furthermore, through the creation of your art, your existence is sustainable, creative, and fulfilling. Would you say this describes you? If not, is this something that you want for yourself? It was what we wanted for ourselves, and it took us quite a while to achieve it. Truthfully, there were many times we didn't think we'd make it at all. We were living in a world that was reactive rather than proactive, and it was costing us greatly. If any of this resonates with you, we'd like to help you find a better way. Because once we were able to honestly say we were living our documentary lives, we could look back and see what had gotten us there, and we knew we had to share it with others. We broke it all down and put it into Living Your Documentary Life, a program that helps you to craft your own lifestyle, relationships, and mindset in ways that empower you to make your best documentary films. You can find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife. Look, Filmmaking at its very core is a leap of faith for just about everyone involved, from the film financiers to, to the producers, to the talent, the crew, you name it. Anyone who participates in the making of a film, 
no matter how small the involvement, and then anyone who actually goes to see the film is giving a bit of a leap of faith. They're all collectively entrusting that their time and energy and money is going to be well worth their, well, their time, effort, and money. Making a documentary film is no different. In fact, it might even require more of a leap of faith from people since the number of documentaries that get big distribution deals and actually make good money, it's relatively small. Though for the purposes of what we're talking about here at the moment, I'm more concerned with the kind of leap of faith that it's going to take from you, my fellow doc lifer, especially if you're a first-time doc filmmaker, and I know that a number of you are. And if this isn't your first time, then you already know a little bit about what I'm talking about here. And it's this belief in yourself to get something done. It's the belief in yourself, and, and that includes the subject of interest of your film, that you can accomplish something that you have perhaps never done before, which is make a documentary film. And this may be a doc short, a micro doc, if you will, or, or it might be something a bit longer, maybe even a feature length documentary. Whatever the length of your project, if you've not done one, what the heck makes you think that you can? Well, you, for starters. If you didn't believe it on some level, you wouldn't be entertaining the idea. Or you certainly wouldn't be entertaining something like making a film. Making a film is a monumental task. If you've even the slightest hesitation, you know, I'd encourage you to any one of a thousand other creative endeavors that, that, that won't require a massive investment of your time, not to mention a significant investment of finances. I don't know, like painting. How about painting? For fairly low costs, you know, you could get yourself into painting with, with, with some brushes and acrylics and paper, canvas, whatever, and, and you could whip up some artwork in like a day, right? Now, 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 mind you, this is not to diminish the genius, creativity, and work that goes into a piece of art. Not at all. I'm not suggesting that, that we could all be the next Egon Scheele. Uh, of course we can't. But, but, but I'm just making a comparison of, of you know, the time and, and energy and money between the mediums of, in this instance, painting and, and filmmaking. I say this all the time. Of all the mediums of artistic ins- expression, filmmaking is actually, it's actually a pretty ridiculous, if, if not downright insane, practice. I mean, who do such a thing? There are a zillion things that you have to do to make one. A zillion different ways to screw up along the way. Hello, script writing, shooting, directing, editing. Who in their right minds would actually choose to do all of these at, at, at once or, or do all of them to, to come up with one thing at the end? Well, apparently we would, my doc lifers. And if you're anything like me, and I'm pretty sure that you are, filmmaking is something that almost seems like you don't have a choice, right? You don't have a choice or a say in it. It's something we have to do. Storytelling via you know our brains and, and a camera and some sound and a laptop, yeah, it's something that we can't and we don't really want to live without. Of course, it doesn't make it any less insane, but, but that's kind of my point here. Something deep down inside of you knows without hesitation that you want to be a doc filmmaker. And that, you know, your particular project that you're into, it's one that's absolutely without a doubt one that you believe in, and therefore you're going to absolutely without a doubt do it. The leap of faith, it's embedded within you. I remember when I was first toying with the idea of doing Journey to Kathmandu. Actually, you know what? Let me rephrase that because I wasn't toying with it at all. Once I'd had the concept or idea, I knew I was going to do the film. I knew I was doing it. Again, while I'd worked on other other people's documentaries, I'd never actually done one myself. But I promise you, I was absolutely positive that I was going to make this film. I didn't know any of the details, of course, you know, 
minor ones, really, like like where I was going to get any money, where I was going to get a camera, who my crew would be, you know, how I was actually going to get to Nepal, that kind of stuff. But but none of that mattered. See, in my heart, I just felt that without a doubt, I was going to be making this film. You know, even when my producer at the time and myself, we, we called off the shoot, you know, merely four weeks before the proposed date of actually going, which then meant, by the way, that I couldn't film for another year since this was an annual event that I'd be filming. Even then, I actually somehow had no doubt that this film was going to be made. In fact, I remember thinking to myself, okay, yeah, this this kind of sucks. Uh, I've spent the last year of my life holding fundraisers, you know, getting all of the gear together, talking to just about everyone I knew or would meet you know, about my documentary film that, that I was going to be doing. Uh, but maybe this was how it was meant to be. This must be happening for a reason. I remember thinking those thoughts. And, and, and shortly after that, I dissolved the agreement that I had with my producer, fired her, and, and then I began applying for grants. And within five months time, I'd raised more funds via a fundraiser, was awarded my first ever grant, and was on my way to Nepal on a scouting and filmmaking trip. Now I want to pause here for a moment because because the last thing I want to do is lead you into thinking that 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 I'm proposing that I just thought these things into place and then they magically appeared. I'm by no means suggesting that if you just, you know, quote unquote, believe in yourself and keep telling yourself that that all of your dreams will come true. Um I would never simplify it as such, but 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 a belief in yourself, a leap of faith, if you will, it's certainly a part of the process. Look, I do believe in manifesting one's destiny, if you will, but 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 I've never once believed that you could just sit in your room with your with your vision board and and meditate, and, and then things would simply happen for you. No way, no way, can't be done. I mean. I'd recommend that manifesting and, and vision boarding and, and meditating might might and, and should be part of your process. But but you, of course, you also have to work your ass off. And then you have to work your ass off some more. Leap of faith includes a belief in yourself and your project. But it also includes a belief that you will have the willpower and stamina to get the necessary work done that will see you and your project through. Telling yourself and telling others that you can do something, that's never been enough, nor should it be. But, you know, let's assume that we all know this. I feel comfortable somehow saying that, you know, most of us documentary filmmakers, most documentary filmmakers that I know, probably by nature, if nothing else, are pretty level-headed, down-to-earth, realistic people. Um, I could be wrong, but but to me, this this kind of makes sense. So let's assume that we already know and fully embrace the, 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 that no amount of thinking alone is going to bring anything, let alone a documentary film, into our existence, into our lives without putting the necessary work into it. When I talk about believing in yourself and your project or taking that leap of faith, it inherently assumes that, that doing the work is going to be a big part of it. In fact, doing the work, it, it feeds into your belief in the project and certainly vice versa, right? Now, sometimes you may have the belief and passion for your project, but you may not have quite the leap of faith that you need to actually make the documentary film. You may not believe that, that for instance, you have the necessary skills, or you may not believe that, that, that you have or will have the funds, or you may not think that someone will, else will find your project worthy. But again, you really feel strong enough and passionate enough about this particular subject or event that, that, that you want to make a doc film about it. 
but maybe you just need a little extra something that can provide you with the leap of faith, you know, the leap of faith that's necessary to just to start full on moving forward with the idea as a legit doc film production. Now, if this if this describes you and it's something that you're experiencing, something I might recommend doing is is getting on the internet and seeing if someone has, has someone else has already made a film about your subject. I do this all of the time. Whenever I think that I that I may have an idea for a potential potential project, you know, I'll just Google the subject plus the word documentary and and, and see if anything pops up. Sometimes a number of responses will come back and show me that, yes, indeed, like 10 other people have already made or are making documentaries on, on the subject, and, and perhaps they've exhausted the subject already, and, and that it might be best for me to pick, you know, some other entirely unrelated topic. Or it, it might help me refine a certain aspect of the subject that hasn't been talked about, um, or help me come up with maybe a unique way of, of telling the story, um, in a way that you know hasn't been told prior to this. But doing something like searching the topic, it can lead you on to something else as well. And that's a community. How many times have you searched a subject that you thought maybe, you know, not a ton of people knew about, let alone have actually done a documentary about, only to find out that there are actually, you know, user groups devoted to the subject or or local clubs that that meet every month and 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 talk about this subject. You know, there's there's YouTube videos made by people in a community um, that have the have a passion for the subject. What this does is is it not only gives you confidence that there are people out there, you know, who might be interested in your subject, but it also gives you an audience, right, to start engaging with well before you even start making the film which is great. You can bounce ideas off them. You know, learn who the experts in the field are. You can you can enlist these people to help with crowdfunding and crowdsourcing. And and really before you know it, you've you've found yourself a support group for your film. You know, these people are already believing in you and your project, and they're also they're also spreading the gospel about it long before you've even made the film. I found that this can go, you know, it can go a very long way in helping you see a film come to fruition. When others believe in you, you believe in you. Finding a community like this, it can be absolutely critical, not only to the success maybe of of your film later on, but really you as a filmmaker, as a doc filmmaker. Being a part of any community is being a part, it's being a part of a support group. Actually, you know, I feel that way on a personal level about this podcast. I know from from the emails that I get and, and from social media posts that, that, that people will share, that I have an audience out there who cares about this content. You guys regularly listen to TDL every week and, and, and are actively engaging with the outside world with it. That not only feeds my soul as the host and producer of this podcast, but it also gives me excitement, support, and positivity for me on my own doc projects. And I hope, actually, I fully believe that this podcast is doing the same, that it's doing the same for you. It's providing some inspiration, useful information, and, and engaging content that you're finding value in. And enough of it that, that you continue to come back to it each and every week. And, and, and at some point, I'm hopeful that the documentary life, it'll become a platform where doc filmmakers can come to support and network with one another. That's always been my dream with this podcast. And you know what? I truly believe that when we start to get some more things into place here, that's exactly what will happen. I really do believe that. Because I, I know that this Doc Lifer community is a supportive one that recognizes not only the value in what we do as Doc Filmmakers, 
but also the value in what we're all starting to do here with the documentary life. And believe me, it took a leap of faith for me to do this podcast. It still takes a certain leap of faith, really, every day, I'd say. I mean, how can I truly say that someone is going to listen to my podcast? How can I be assured of that? Or that they're going to, you know, once they have maybe even found me, that they'll continue listening. I mean, there are so many other podcasts out there to choose from, right? And I'm talking really incredible ones out there, many that I listen to myself. Sure, there, there may not be a ton of maybe documentary film specific ones, but you know, it's a pretty crowded world out there, this podcast thing. But my faith in it and and my faith in you, my fellow documentary filmmakers, it is unwavering. The amazing guests that we have on this program that we all learn from, the stories that we, you know, that I share with you with the Doc Life or Community Question of the Week, um, the emails that I get from you guys, the social media that, that I see you're all sharing, it just fuels me more and more to do this show. I know that what we're all doing here in this documentary community is important and that we're all doing important work with our films. So if you're at all on the fence about your own film or your idea for a documentary project, whether you should be doing it or or whether you're capable of pulling it off, remember this. In order for anyone else to take a leap of faith on your project, whether it be potential funders, crew crew members, uh, grant funding institutions, or later on, you know, an audience for your film. It's your own leap of faith, your utter 100% unbending belief in yourself and your film that's going to enable others to also take their own leap of faith with your film. And with that, we'll take a little leap into our next segment, the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. This episode's Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week comes from a recent TDL convert, Julie, who's based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. And she has written to me, Chris, I am a self-taught, as in Google, YouTube, and two community college classes, filmmaker who started this stuff 18 months ago at age 42. I've made four short docs, and I think the latest is my best. The nuns I made it for even posted it on their webpage. Wait, nuns? Yes, don't let the tired old stereotypes fool you. They are some of the most amazing women I've ever met. And thanks to them being women, the Bechdel scale breaks when it measures my stuff since most of it is 100% woman-made. And and I'll stop here just for a second. And I, I'm embarrassed to admit, I had actually had to look up what the Bechdel scale was. Um, and basically, it deals with the amount of women that are that are in a film and talking to one another without necessarily talking about another man. It's um it's a great I love it. It's a great concept. Uh, if I remember, I'll put I'll put a link to um a website that 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 explains the the concept. Probably most of you already know. I didn't, but um but I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I continue with with Julie's email. You are onto something with this podcast. I know you are looking to give back and that hopefully this also has led to some great gigs and connections along the way for you too. I am doing something on a smaller scale that works on those two principles. When I realized my town lacked a decent place to take filmmaking classes, I started my own. And Julie includes a, a meetup link here for, um, for, for Charlotte, North Carolina. Again, I'll also post that on the show notes. I heard on a podcast that you plan to visit North Carolina yourself. If so, let's meet up. And or maybe we could do a call-in sometime. In the past, I've hosted a small group and, and we watched some videos. Then we called the filmmaker to ask some more questions. Do you do workshops? Do you want to? I can even set you up in Charlotte with something. We need you, Chris. I think I found you when scouring podcasts on iTunes. I just got an iPod last year and was looking specifically for filmmaking. And now, much to my delight, your doc filmmaking one. 
Chris, your podcasts make me realize I am not alone. I spend lots of time alone all day, and this is awesome to remember that there are other people out there doing this documentary life thing too. Thank you. Let's keep talking. Wow. Well, Julie, it is my absolute pleasure to have you with us as a member of the Doc Lifer community. It's a community that keeps growing every show and every day. And honestly, I can't get enough of it. In fact, I recently posted a picture on our Instagram account of me, well, my feet to be specific, surrounded by a stack of emails that, that I've received from Doc Lifers such as yourself. In fact, anybody that would like to, you can check out the photo by going to, to our Instagram account, which is the underscore documentary underscore life. And again, that's at Instagram. Anyhow, to your email, Julie, first off, Huge congratulations, huge congratulations on, on, on taking the initiative to do a couple of things, really. Firstly, way to decide that you wanted to start making documentary films, even though 18 months prior, you'd never done such a thing. You're actually a prime example of, of what I was talking about in our first segment, right? You took some leaps of faith, right? And now that I think of it, perhaps both literally and figuratively, given the content of some of your films, <laughs> it just occurred to me. But motivating and teaching yourself to do this thing called documentary film, it's not easy. So, so nice work on that one. Really nice work. Secondly, great work taking it upon yourself to start a meetup group for doc filmmakers in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And for creating a place where like-minded people can come to learn the craft of documentary filmmaking. Love that. I love that you did that. And you asked about workshops, which is really very appropriate timing since Steph and I, we've recently been putting together a plan for that very thing. We're putting together a, a one-day workshop, which will consist of not only some of the technical aspects, of course, of, of making a documentary film, but it will also encompass some of the other maybe lesser discussed, but I would say equally important aspects of living one's documentary life. You know, for instance, like topics like like personal and professional finances, how things like diet and exercise, you know, it affects the artist's creativity, um, how to network with your documentary community, both locally as well as globally. And, 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 you know, these are just a few off the top of my head. We've also got some other concepts for other workshops, topics that, that we're playing with as well. But this initial one would most likely concentrate on this idea of, of how to best live and lead one's documentary life. Anyhow, we'd love to bring something like this to North Carolina, perhaps even before the end of the year, but maybe more likely after the new year. But 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 we'll look into it, right? Um, I'd love to further explore some of these options with you, Julie, since you clearly are connected to the doc community there already. So I will definitely be in touch regarding this. And other doc lifers can expect to hear more about workshops soon as we're looking to start bringing these to towns here in the U.S. as well as abroad since we, we do do a lot of Barong Films work outside the country as well. In fact, now would be a great time if there are others out there like Julie who, who might be interested in bringing a TDL workshop to your town. Um, we've begun a list where we know we've got some doc lifers who'd be interested, but we'd much rather you tell us where should we be going? What are the towns and cities you'd love to have us come to 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 do a workshop? So so please, if you if you think your town could use a workshop like the one that I've described, email me at chris at barongfilms.com. And that's Chris C H R I S at B A R A N G films.com. And and do let me know where you might like us to come to with our one-day workshop. The last thing I'd like to say is Julie, thank you so much for the kind and encouraging words. Emails like yours, they keep me doing what I'm doing and, and, and keep me believing that this podcast, 
is doing a good service to the doc filmmaking community. And again, if anyone in the Charlotte, North Carolina community is interested in joining Julie's meetup group, please do visit our show notes for for a direct link to join up. And, and Julie, also, please do keep us aware of happenings with the group as well as you know any other interesting doc-related items in, in the North Carolina area. Remember, you too can have a voice in shaping how this show goes. I'd love to hear topic recommendations and guest suggestions from you. Tell me what you need. What is it that you as doc filmmakers in both, again, the technical aspects as well as your doc lives, what are the things you need to be hearing about? What do you need help with? Keep in mind, with this show, I am at your service. That's that's really how I look at it. So you should definitely take advantage of this. Again, my email is chris at barongfilms.com. When we come back from the break, we're going to get into that topic that I'm not very comfortable with, death. But the conversation was was made a little bit easier since it was framed within the context of documentary film. In fact, a six-part documentary series called The After Hours Club. We're going to talk with the filmmakers after we come back from a quick break. If you like what you hear on an episode of The Documentary Life and you'd like to further explore topics or or learn more about show guests and their work, don't forget you can always go to the show notes for any given episode. Our website is www.thedocumentarylife.com and we put out show notes for each and every episode. These show notes include things like teasers and scenes from our documentary industry guest conversations, links to mentioned websites, special TDL-only promotions, downloadable PDFs, and links to other articles to further explore topics that we've mentioned on the show. And that's just to name a few of the things that you'll find there. So don't forget to go and check out the show notes today by going to the documentarylife.com website. I am joined today by filmmakers Morgan St. Knight and Christian Mockaber. Morgan and Christian, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to have you guys here on the show today. I think it was Morgan who reached out to me a handful of months ago, making me aware of a documentary series that you guys were in the midst of production and were planning on on having an online release. And we'll get to how you've released that here in, in a bit. You had given me a heads up about this about this program via the After Hours Club TV website. And I just want to welcome you guys to the show. I, I've been eagerly awaiting awaiting our conversation now for a few months. Well, yeah. thank you, Chris. Very excited Thanks to for- be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. We've been looking forward to it, too. Excellent. Excellent. I think that that, that what we can start out with initially is why don't we um, Morgan and or Christian and you guys just take your turns jumping in here. Um, let me hear a little bit about what your guys's background was prior to prior to the After Hours Club, because from what I understand, you guys are well seasoned vets in the industry. Yeah, well, uh, I actually had 25 years of experience working in journalism. I worked for the CNN networks, specifically at the network known as HLN, Mm. which is sometimes called the Nancy Grace Network because she was the most visible person on it. Right, right. And uh, I'd had a lot of roles there. I was a writer, I was a producer, copy editor, and that's how I spent my 25 years. So I had a pretty strong background in investigative journalism and journalism as a whole. But this is actually my first foray into long-form documentary format. And and Christian, how about yourself? And and included in this answer, not only can you give us your background, but how you got involved with the with the, with the project. Was this was this part of your idea, or did Morgan invite you along? So essentially, Morgan just came to me 
and we went to lunch at a Mexican restaurant. I remember it very vividly. And he said, do you want to make a documentary? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. But uh, and that's pretty much as simple as it was. It wasn't more complicated than that. It was essentially a few friends getting together and saying, let's make this. And then I sort of started to get my head around what exactly it was going to be. And uh, I was like, oh, this is going to be a huge series that we're going to create. But getting back to the subject of uh, my background, yeah, I've actually been producing media for about five years. Okay, I essentially was about to finish college uh, in 2012. Okay, and was like, uh, I don't really want to work in an office. I was getting my business degree, and I was realizing I was on a crash course just sitting in a cubicle. And I was like, that's not what I want to do with my life. Right, and so. What I did is I started a YouTube channel and I just started reviewing things like anime or pop culture items with my friend Corey. And we just racked up like a hundred videos that we had cut and shot <laughs> and edited and color corrected. And by then I had kind of got some momentum in this. And then I just started going to YouTube University and yes. started practicing my craft and learning new things. And I got a 5D Mark III mm -hmm. back in the day. I still remember that camera. I still own it, actually. I love that camera. <laughs> and uh, just started making things. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know, like so many people in the film industry, they're like, I want to make a film. You know, I want to do this. And I was kind of lost. I was like, I'm good at this. I know how to do it. Now, how do I make money? Like, that was always my goal. Like, how do I turn this into a profitable business? You know, that was very important to me, probably because of my business degree. Right, right. And, and, and I'll stop you right there because I'll ask you, did you have that intent when you were when you were posting videos on YouTube with, with, with your with your friend and colleague, Corey? Did, even early on, uh, were you planning on at some point making money from these YouTube videos? I didn't see the connection between our YouTube videos and yeah. finances. Yeah. I didn't, that wasn't it. To me, that was my playground. Okay, that was okay. where I just practiced. And we would get a new camera. And the first thing we would do is make YouTube videos with it. Right. So I could get my hours up with the gear. Totally. And then I would be pitching it to a client or trying to, uh, you know, I guess practically like take that skill and say, here's what I do and here's how much it costs to have me do it. And so that's kind of like I say, it's really, you don't have to go to film school anymore, in my opinion. You just right. have to put in a bunch of hours to get your skill up. You know, like you really, the experience is where it is. But I will say, I do know quite a few of my contemporaries in the Atlanta area that I work out of. <laughs> and with their formal backgrounds, they know a little bit more of how to structure things uh, in pre-production, I would say, better than I do. Right. But that's where Morgan came in, because him being a writer and a producer, he helped us along in this project, uh, the After Hours Club, uh, immensely. Like, I'm a good DP, but he is a great producer, and uh, that is the backbone of what created this show. So the two of you met together in a taco shop and, and had a conversation, and, mm -hmm. and Morgan invited you into his idea. What was it about the idea that grabbed you? And then we can switch over to Morgan, and Morgan, tell us a bit more about After Hours Club. So essentially what grabbed me was the idea that we were going to make a documentary about death that wasn't cheesy. I was very adamant. I was like, this cannot be a ghost show. Like, we're not going to have us walking down a hallway with a bright light in our face, and then it's going to turn and cut to me, and I'm going to be like, what's that? And then it's going to go to commercial. <laughs> like, that's not what we were going to make, you know? And he's like, no, we're going to tell real stories. We're going to have at least six different perspectives because we have six episodes. Right. And uh, he wanted to be the narrator, and he said, but you have to be in it. And that was kind of new for me because mm. I was like, 
I'm a director of photography. I'm not usually in front of the camera. Uh, but at the same time, I had done so many YouTube videos. I was like, that's not, it can't be that hard. I was like, let's just go for it. <laughs> and uh, so that was my biggest hang up. Like, okay, I have to be in this documentary. And then uh, Morgan just took the lead and we started outlining episodes, planning travel. He started sending extremely well-written emails right. out to people because that he was like the liaison for introducing people to this project. And he was so good at it that it got so much momentum behind it while we were producing it. Mm -hmm. And um, I can see that I, I remember the initial email uh, that Morgan had sent me and it, it grabbed me immediately. It was it was on mm -hmm. one hand, um, clearly someone who worked in the industry. It was someone who was very excited about their project and they believed in it. But there was also and, and of course, there's a, there's a sort of I don't want to say if there's a serious tone or a serious nature to the content, but he brought mm -hmm. but there was clearly a humor attached to it as well. And I, I immediately was like, Steph, you got to look at this email. Uh, we got we got to have these guys on the show. Yeah. One of one of the other things I always say is it's a documentary about death, but the amount of positivity and uplifting stories in this documentary mm -hmm. is extremely high, much more than you would assume. So in that sense, uh, I knew that we were going to make something that I hadn't seen a bunch in the documentary space, and I thought we were going to tell a really good story, and that's what got me involved. Morgan, what was it for you? There, ha it, it was what was the initial seed, I guess, or where were the seeds sown where you thought this is the subject that I want to tackle, and it's worthy of of a six part documentary series. Well, I've always kind of been interested in dark things. Uh, I like to say I was the kid who, when everybody else in high school was anxious about the high school football game on Friday night or the uh, Sunday evening professional football game. I grew up in Cleveland, mm. and so they were excited about the Browns. Oh, I was wow. the one who was— That's not easy, you know. No, no, it isn't. And I say they were excited, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving them a lot more credit than they would get, especially the way the Browns played when I was growing That's up. That's right. But— uh, they were into that, and I was into the Saturday night and Friday night horror shows. Yes. So I've always kind of had a dark bent. And that kind of carried with me through my adult life. And when I was working in journalism, I would sometimes suggest these stories to the people at the desks at CNN. And they were like, yeah, well, that's interesting, but our audience doesn't want to hear You're about right, it. You're right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's like, <laughs> sure and I thought, well, that. okay, you know, thanks, but no thanks kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, but I thought it had some merit, but I also thought there was something that needed to be gone into in depth with this. I didn't really think you could do it in a two or three minute report mm. on CNN or HLN. And so I kind of kept it in the back of my head. And then late last year, circumstances allowed me to actually devote all my time and energy to a long-term project. And this was the right. one I wanted to do. And as I started listing all the topics I wanted to cover and the different types of people I wanted to interview, I knew I couldn't really do a film per se because it's just too broad. It, mm -hmm. would, it would short short shift anybody if we tried to do it in a film. So I said a series is the way to go. What face does death have for you? Have you ever seen it up close? Death has left a trace on us all. People try to ignore it as much as they want. But it's, it's waiting around the bend for all of us. Death is the, is the big psychological crisis that we all have to face. Serial killing is now on the rise, again. Real question is, is how many of them are there out there? Santa Monte is not new. She is the angel of death. She was created by God. I think the funeral service industry is still a bit of a mystery to a lot of people. 
So when you start the arterial embalming, you're gonna cut here. After that, even worse. Death bets out all the suckers. Death knows whether you're lying or you're telling the truth. Because at the end of the day, it's one of the purest things that's out there. Give us a uh, give us a thumbnail sketch of what a few of these episodes are about. What what can what can what can my listeners expect when they go to the website and start watching some of these episodes? Well, we really try to cover a broad range of topics about death. So in some of the episodes, you will see us go talk to morticians in training at a funeral science program that we visited down in New Orleans. We'll go to a few different cemeteries to look at. You know, just uh, the way cemeteries are laid out in the U.S. and different burial options. We also get into some pretty dark stuff. Like we look at serial killers. We look at um, death in the media. We look at sexual tie-ins to death, too, because there are people who are actually turned on by the thought of killing someone else or watching someone being killed. One of our great interviews is with a former death investigator, Joseph Scott Morgan, who is uh, regularly appears on national television as a forensics expert, and he gave us a very powerful, gripping, personal interview about what it's like to actually work. These are the guys that you see out at the crime scenes, they're the CSIs, and you don't right. really understand how that affects them personally until you talk to someone like Joseph. But we also get into some broader spectrums too, like we look at some non-mainstream religions like Buddhism, uh, the Santa Muerte cult, which is uh, probably more popular out west than it is here on the eastern seaboard, but it's gaining popularity here. And uh, then we also do specific episodes on hospice and on suicide. Now, let's talk about the decision, Morgan, to have you be in front of the camera and be narrating a bunch of this. Um, when did you know, at what point in the, in the idea conception, did you guys know that, Hey, Morgan's going to be in front of the camera and he's going to be sort of through the lens through which we tell these stories or the voice through which we tell these stories? Yeah, that was pretty much right from, from the get go. Uh, I was designing this to be a series that was in my voice and sharing a lot of personal information through all of the episodes about myself and what my views on death were and how the series as an overall is affecting me as we go and take these trips and talk to these people. But I really wanted to make it an ensemble cast because so often you, there's so much that goes into making a documentary and the people behind the camera, the people who you don't see in front of the lens, they don't always get a voice in these things. In fact, very often they don't get a voice. So right from the get-go, I was very adamant that this had to be an ensemble sort of production, that everybody would get FaceTime, that everybody would get that acknowledgement and be allowed to have a voice in what was going to be our final product. Well, it sounds like in that way, it becomes a... a really quite a collaboration with your team there's no almost i mean of course there's a dp of course there's a director of course there's the writer but nonetheless and and i think this can often be the case with documentary filmmakers um, and documentary film teams i should say that it, it really is a collaborative process and it really seems to be something you were going with um how was that for you christian you alluded to that earlier that you were a dop and that of course you were going to be in front of the camera as well was this truly a collaborative process and and, and did having the crew members on camera did that uh, did that help with that 
I would say it definitely was a collaborative process in the sense that the background, the backbone of the structure of our team was definitely there in a traditional sense. You know, you have me as the DP, you have Keith or you have Morgan uh, as the, you know, the main producer and the drawing the outline for what we're trying to create. And then you have our editor, who's also our B-cam. And then you have uh, Corey, who's like our production assistant and overall like awesome guy there helping us do everything. But if these people wanted to step outside their role and kind of like, let's say someone needed to shoot some B-roll and I couldn't go with them, I just trusted them because I knew they were going to get the right stuff. I had to kind of just let loosen the ties of a standard film set and let them go. And I tell you, 99% of the time it worked. There was one or two times where uh, a certain shooter or a certain person would overstep their bounds. And I just say, you know, I've decided we're going to go this way and I have to correct this. And I'm, I'm sorry you wanted to go that way. And mm -hmm. I'm changing the course of this. Right. And since we're all friends, it wasn't a big deal. Um, so you can kind of loosen the roles, I feel, in a documentary role, in the documentary world, and still get a great product. But as long as everyone still sort of respects the overall status of the decision makers when it comes down to that. And uh, we had a really good time, though, all working together. And I think it really comes through in the final product. Um, and uh, again, Morgan just had such a good outline. We were more so following that along. And then once we had gathered yeah, all the yeah. footage we really flushed out the story, I think, with the uh, narration in the black room. And how, okay, well, and how scripted were those parts? How scripted were, were Morgan's stand-up parts and then where you guys, you know, actually had sit-down interviews? Was that all teleprompter work? Was it all, was it questions and answers, typical interview format? How did you guys do that? The, the way I would look at that is uh, Morgan's stand-up was definitely him. He had what he wanted to say, but he was riffing. Yeah. In my opinion, yeah, yeah. he may say differently. And I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, Morgan, but the actual black. <laughs> no, room, you got it right. Yeah. Uh, the actual black room narration is all teleprompter. OK. And we all had a say in it, though, because if it was not in our voice, it's like it's like, Morgan, you're saying that in your voice and I'm saying it. Like, yeah, we need to change this I'll a bet. Little bit. I'll bet. Right well, because then it, it's, it's going to come off as inauthentic, right? Yeah. You look dead. You look very, you know, boring when you're re you look mm. like you're reading. You don't look like you're talking. Right. And as a gentleman that does a lot of corporate media with a lot of CEOs and a lot of people that aren't good on camera, <laughs> I can spot I can spot the dead eyes, you know, when they're just trying to slog through it so they can go to the next meeting. <laughs> right. You know, so I was like, we're, we're failing here. We need to change the wording here. So it feels like us. We need to get more involved in this. Um, but that was never really a big issue. It yeah. was just something we we all had to say. It was all very malleable. Well, and, and, and I maybe have, may have been looking at this with too critical an eye, but I felt like sort of the black room shots that you're, you're referencing, I felt like, I felt like it was almost to me obvious that you were reading off teleprompter, but that almost mm -hmm. that you had written those parts. So it was, it was for me, and, and I'm kind of geeking out here, it was a very, and you guys have this quite a bit throughout the film, right? This idea of meta filmmaking. There's a lot of meta in your mm -hmm. episodes. And I, for mm -hmm. me, I felt like, well, I know he's reading a teleprompter, but I feel like he wants me to know that. But it doesn't matter because it's in his voice. And uh, I I liked it. It was something different. And, and I appreciated that. But I also, I also, like I said, geek out over meta filmmaking. I think it was a good tool for us to keep the narrative focused. Um, and also it didn't put the pressure on us to get it right in the field, Yeah, right. which was a, a real, yeah. like 
we're, we were tired sometimes, you know, like <laughs> oh, man. documentary filmmaking is not made on your time. It's made on the schedule that gets created. And, you know, no matter how you feel, you have to stick to the schedule or you have to adapt and keep moving. Right. You know, I like to say all the time, video production, media production, movie making is 90 percent problem solving, 10 percent video work. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So. So mm-hmm. not having to get it right in the field was was vital for us to keep the quality really high because none of us are professional on-camera talents. Right, right, right. Though I would argue that Morgan definitely appears that he is. Very good, very oh, good, yeah. Morgan. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I've, I've spent so many of my years writing for other people that finally I've figured out how it's actually supposed to be done when you're actually reading the words. <laughs> I'll bet, I'll bet. It only took a quarter century. I have to ask, was this a labor of love for everyone involved? And what I mean by that is typically in documentary filmmakers, there's not necessarily a lot of money that goes around for the crew members. So how did you guys work this? I know that you were an executive producer on this, Morgan. So perhaps mm-hmm. uh, perhaps you were a little bit of the money man in, in this situation. But And I hope you'll forgive me if I'm asking, but as a doc filmmaker, I'm very curious. Were you guys all being paid throughout this shoot? Were some of you being paid? Were some of you in this in, in a way that... Um, look, we're in this together. This is a team effort and we're doing this on our own because this is our doc series. How did you guys work that? Well, I pretty much arranged for all the financing. And then of course, everybody who was involved with this, Christian and Corey and our lead editor, Jordan, were all paid okay. for the work. I kind but of figured I have that, okay. to, But I have to say that, yeah, but I have to say it was definitely a labor of love, I think, yeah. on everybody's part, because everybody went so far over and above anything I could reasonably have expected. Right. And right. especially Christian, as the leader of the tech crew, just shown the whole way through and provided the solid leadership we really needed to get this project done. And I'm not sure there's enough money in the world for <laughs> me to be able to, to compensate him for the, the spirit that he brought in. But everybody actually did. So this is something that I would say, yes, while there were finances involved, yeah. everybody put so much of themselves into it and worked so hard that I, I think you really could call it labor of love. Yeah, I, I feel that uh, uh, Morgan really helped connect the dots on the financial side for everyone. And sure. um, I just made sure to lay out what everyone was going to get up front and the amount of time we were going to spend. And yeah. they understood the commitment that they were getting into up front. And uh, one of the things I like to do with a business, especially a media production business, is talk numbers up front and get all that settled very quickly. Yeah. Because as soon as emotions get involved, um, numbers get more, they get emotions attached to them. So I just got all that done up front and everyone knew what they were. Especially when you're working on a project of this nature where you're working perhaps with friends and colleagues, yeah, and right? and for eight mm-hmm. months, you know. Yeah, and like for eight, eight months. months, there you go, right. Yeah, at least, at least a week or more a month, you know, and some, some okay, months we go. traveled a lot, right, you know. Right. So, um, especially towards the end, we had one month that was almost, this is almost all we did. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, so, yeah. so um, and that's not a problem. Uh, especially when we hit post-production, my production company got a little more, uh, I would not say less involved, but it became more the editor's and uh, Morgan's job. Yeah. And then we, as the director of photography, I got to kind of phase out and go do some corporate production uh, and uh, take my production assistant, Corey, with me. Right. And we kind of got to, and it was also really good because I got my head away from it and then got to come back to it with fresh eyes and was sort of helping shape it. Which can be really nice, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, uh, 
So uh, I think um, I wish we had more insight into how to get your documentary funded. We really don't necessarily, <laughs> in that, but uh, I will say that um, it was it was great to know there was some money behind it and it helped keep everyone focused because usually in film projects, there's always the person that's the most passionate and everyone else is just sort of kind of there, yeah, you know, right, um, right. And that oh, person's absolutely. The cheerleader. But in this case, I think everyone was on board from beginning yep. to end. And, uh, and, and Morgan, maybe you can help speak to this a little bit in terms of financing. I know that you, you were, you, you were bringing in the financing or you were responsible for the financing for the film. How did you go out? Mm -hmm. How did you go out and try to sell this series, a series on death? How do you do that? I didn't, uh, pretty much. This is solely funded by myself. Okay. Okay. So, okay. uh, this is, this he is sold it to a, himself now. Yeah, I did. But I let me tell you, I also I had to sell it to all the people we interviewed, though. And yeah, of course, oh, you know, some of them, some of them were pretty hesitant. So in oh, that wow. way, that that was my gathering the investment because we needed the good material. And I was able to bring that in. But yes, I've, I've pretty much taken my savings for this because <laughs> this is uh, this is a passion project for me. And I really believe in it and really believe it's going to do well. I really want to know why, Morgan, was it so important for you? Why was it important enough that you took your savings to produce this show? What, why, um, why was this, why was this series so important to you? Well, I've always wanted to do something that has great impact. I wanted to do something that would really change the way people think about a topic that everybody thinks they know a lot about death in America, but there's, or just death in general, but there are so many things that people don't know about. They don't know what happens during an embalming, for example. They don't know what uh, death investigators like Joseph Scott Morgan go through. They don't know what people from religions that are outside what I call the mainstream, you know, the big three, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, mm. they don't really know what people believe mm -hmm, in these other mm -hmm, religions. Mm -hmm. And it was really important because these are people who are very often, when you talk about embalmers, when you talk about people who work in morgues, uh, these are people who are often marginalized. And I personally know what it's like to feel marginalized. I'll so right, right. I wanted to make sure, yeah, I wanted to make sure that their stories got told. But I needed to make sure that whatever topic I was doing was relevant. And that's why I felt passionate about death. You don't get much more relevant than death because everybody <laughs> has to face it. I'm curious. Um, of it, it, it is the, the story and the locations are tied to the U.S., right? And you go all over the U.S., mm -hmm. Do yeah. you see a possibility in the future? Is Does this interest you at all to go outside of the U.S. and explore death cultures around the world? Yes, it does. In fact, let me let me just say right up front that we're doing this series. We're, it's a whole series, but we're kind of doing it as a proof of concept to make sure to see if someone else would be interested in possibly taking it outside the U.S., a, a network perhaps. Someone, someone who could help us definitely with the travel logistics because the travel can be a, a big part of making sure you stick to schedule and stick to budget. But uh, we would like to do that. This was not intended to be a one-off project at all. It was intended to, as I said, be a proof of concept so that we could show networks that, yes, not only are we capable of doing this, but there's great interest in this too. And we're hoping that through internet distribution, yeah. we're going to be able to get a lot of the metrics because that's one great thing about internet distribution is it gives you a lot of metrics that are a little bit more involved than you would get, say, just from ticket sales at a box office. 
a lot of the documentary work that I do and some commercial work tends to be in developing countries around the world. And so I've, 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 I've been in many cultures where the approach to death is vastly different than anything I've come across in the yes. U.S. And so, man, I, I would love, love to see you guys explore that. Yeah, we are actually going to be very actively pursuing that after the first of the year, drawing up show proposals and possible topics so that we can show people, yeah, there's more than enough material. We did one season. There's more than enough material for three or four more seasons. When you first yeah. reached out mm-hmm. to me, uh, and, and and it was a great email, and and I immediately immediately oh, showed Steph and was like, hey, we, we we gotta we gotta talk to these guys. These are industry vets who are who are kind of doing something different in not only in subject matter with their documentary, but they're making a series, producing it themselves, and then distributing it themselves. And so, um, I was very very intrigued by that. Chris, yeah. what? I had a question for you. I'm sorry. I'm cutting yeah, please, off your concept. Please. And I guess as one DP to another, what'd you think of how it was shot? Yes. Yes. I could tell that you guys come from a, I don't want to see a CNN background because it's not, it's not CNN. Um, there, it looked slickly produced. Um, and, and I don't mean that uh, in a disparaging way. I mean that as a compliment. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, I felt like, and now mind you, I'm only going off of one episode. I've not seen the rest of the series. So mm-hmm. I'm eager to kind of watch the rest of it and see where it goes. But, but I think I have some idea in terms of um, aesthetically, if that's what you're asking. Um, yeah, absolutely. I was curious. Yeah, I was curious what camera you used. Did you use, I was trying to guess. Um, it tell did, me, tell me. Well, you, well, the funny, the thing is you mentioned that you had, um, a 5D Mark III, but the footage, it didn't look like, it didn't look like Canon footage. It looked like Sony footage to me. What did you shoot with? FS7s. I was going to say FS7. If you could see my okay. notes, I literally have it written right here, FS7. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We shot FS7. Half of it was log, half wasn't. It so, was. Okay. Okay. You know, yeah. 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 And then the uh, drone was just a Mavic. What was the decision making behind shooting some of it log and some of the other stuff not log? Purely if we had no control over the light, Ah, if we were like, you know, if it was like there's a window blasting us, I was like, we got to just shoot log and save some of these highlights and try to fix it in post. Yeah, right, Um, right. You know, and other times I I like my baked in LUT, you know, it's kind of my my LUT I've developed. Yeah. And uh, I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. You know, like the other thing is, I yeah, but you're using that LUT just for monitoring purposes. It's not it's not outputting to that with that LUT, is it? No, sometimes it was baked in. Oh, it was. Sometimes okay. uh, the standard color space is either, uh, it's called STD5 on okay. an FS7, okay. or there's one called uh, HS7. Okay. Um, and I go with the, I like the STD5. I know that's a horrible acronym. I have no idea why they named it yeah, that. That's great. But, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I was either shooting STD5 with it baked in, or I was shooting log, uh, I think S-Log3. Okay, um, okay. And then the uh, the Mavic, I just used some baked in look too that I liked because they're because the sensor isn't all that great in the Mavic in the yeah. sense of like dynamic range. I was like, I'll just make it look the way I want. Well, and you only have so much control when you're putting that up in the air, so it makes sense to me that yeah. you would that you would that you would choose to do that. I, I thought I thought it looked great, and 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 uh, I was I was curious about how you shot it. It looked like it looked less cinematic, if you will, than it did a. Um, and it's sort of an exploratory doc, which for me makes sense given the content that you guys were shooting. You're shooting six episodes. You're not shooting an hour and a half or a two hour film. So it, yeah, it made sense to me. 
we didn't like it's not that I didn't want to do cinematic. Sure. People love that term and I like it too. But we had a tight time frame and it was like yeah, coverage and let's keep moving. Yeah. You know? yeah like I'm it sure. was so that's kind of where that came from. But uh, you know, in some ways cinematic is not my develop developmentary direction for who I am as a shooter. You know, I am a purpose built shooter. Um, one because of my training and yeah. two, uh, because, uh, I make two to five minute corporate media. And uh, right, I think right. that's where all my hours have gone into getting it, getting the footage and keeping it moving. Well, Morgan and Christian, it's been a, a fantastic conversation. Is there something else that you would like to add before we wrap up? I would uh, love to say it was a real honor making this documentary along with Morgan. And I feel like my production company, M-Tech Pro Media, is better off because of producing something so large and nice. so different than everything else we've ever done. So I'm, I'm just happy to be part of it. Excellent. And, and I'm happy, too, to have worked with these guys because, you know, Christian and Corey and Jordan... I could never have done anything like this without them. In fact, I'd already made my mind up when I wanted to do this. I said, if Christian can't do it, I'm just going to shelve the project because <laughs> there is no one else that I trust enough with some of the things we're going to be covering, sensitive topics. Not to mention that, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we I do go into some very personal details about my own life in some of these episodes. That's right. So I, I needed to know that there would be someone I could trust absolutely with no hesitation. Yeah. And Christian was that man. So it's been a deep honor to work with all of them. And it's a deep honor to have the viewers tune in to us because I think everybody's going to be able to learn a little bit more about death and maybe learn a little bit more about how they approach life. And uh, for all my film nerds out there, I always I preach this heavily. Um, the best project is a done project. So make sure you have a, a place of ending in mind when you start something in the media industry and push towards that, because having a halfway done idea doesn't really help you. One, it doesn't make you look good. And two, it's not presentable. So we had a very clear endpoint for this series. And I'm amazed that, you know, we're days away from having six yeah. one-hour episodes uh, completed. Right now, we're on the internet at www.afterhoursclub.tv, and we're also on Vimeo and YouTube. If you want to look us up there, both of those, you would look for After Hours Club TV. Okay. And I'll certainly put those links up on our show notes for, for my listeners. Great. And essentially, we're releasing one episode every Thursday for the next five Thursdays, because we've already released the first episode, but we're releasing the next ones every Thursday after that. And if you see this, this episode came out a while ago, that means the whole season's online, and you can check it out. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the program, and uh, I'm really excited to see where the After Hours Club takes us all. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be on the program, so thank you for the invite. Thank you. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live. Mm -hmm.